Pathologists and laboratory staff in various practice settings have experienced severe challenges and stresses secondary to the COVID-19 pandemic. This CAPCAST features an audio recording of a virtual roundtable discussion about pathologist wellness and resilience in the face of burnout, which was hosted by the CAP's Practice Management Committee earlier in 2021. Moderated by Dr. Corinne Sergi, panelists include Dr. Gina Androvina, who is a pathologist at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and Dr. Judy Melnick, CEO of Pathology Expert. Good afternoon, friends and colleagues, and thank you for joining us for this roundtable discussion themed around pathologists' wellness and resilience. My name is Grim Sergi, and it's my pleasure to serve as moderator for today's session. I am a proud member of the CAP, and it is my privilege to serve as the current chair of the Practice Management Committee. As Ken mentioned, I am board certified. Uh, I'm a board certified pathologist and also own and manage Surgy Consulting, a pathology practice management consulting company. Today's topic is meant as an open dialogue between you, our audience, and the panel. In our current work environment, you don't need official surveys to tell you that stress and burnout are common and rising in lab workplaces. Although the majority of pathologists and other lab professionals still very much enjoy their work and get great personal fulfillment out of it, it is also a fact that a growing number of our colleagues are experiencing various degrees of burnout, with too many of them having experienced at some point during the last 12 months suicidal thoughts. Today, our two topic experts will help us learn how to recognize the signs of burnout in the workplace, become familiar with best practices to maintain wellness and more importantly, strengthen resilience. And finally, answer your questions and review your own experiences that you may want to share with the rest of us. It is now my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Dr. Gina Drobina is board certified in clinical pathology and transfusion medicine. She currently serves as medical director of apheresis at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences and medical director of transfusion services at Arkansas Children's Hospital. Additionally, her passion for enacting healthy lifestyle change inspired her to become certified through the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine and she speaks on the topics of wellness, lifestyle medicine, and culinary medicine. Our second panelist today is joining us all the way from New Zealand. Dr. Judy Melinek is a forensic pathologist, expert witness, and author. She is currently working in Wellington, New Zealand. She trained at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, and her memoir, Working Stiff, 
written with her husband T.J. Mitchell, was a New York Times bestseller. Aftershock, their most recent novel, came out last month. They also have a fiction series based on her experiences as a forensic pathologist. A quick disclaimer before we proceed. The information presented today represents the opinion of the panelists and does not represent the official position of the CAP. This presentation should not be used as a substitute for professional assistance. I now turn the microphone to Dr. Drobina. Hello, everyone. We should probably start with defining burnout. So let's take a look at that. Burnout was first described in 1974 by Freudenberger. It's a syndrome characterized by emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, sometimes known as cynicism, and a reduced sense of personal accomplishment. And we now realize that the wide-ranging impact not only affects physicians themselves, but also the healthcare organizations and the public they serve. Let's move on to uh, recognizing signs of burnout, which can include um, feeling weary, or maybe in the beginning, it might feel like exhaustion, waking up, not feeling ready for another day on the job, finding difficulty handling all of the work that needs to fit into your day, or ultimately feeling apathetic about work. Um, those, those can all be early signs of impending burnout. It can be arrested at this point or sometimes even at later points by an extended respite or other intervention. But if it's not, the indifference may progress to a more serious detachment and can be accompanied by a negative attitude. As those thought patterns continue to build um, and additional stressors are added, inefficacy may result, um, leaving someone feeling that the work that they do is of little importance or that anyone could do the job. The workload begins to feel insurmountable, and the daily negativity can affect coworkers and even turn into a loathing that leads to higher rates of turnover, career change, retirement. Um, all those can be outcomes that are common in burned out individuals. So let's take a look next at some of the physical issues that can occur during burnout. Somatic signs can consist of cardiovascular issues, fatigue, headache and gastrointestinal symptoms, um, pain, respiratory infections, sleep disturbances, and others. Uh, psychological signs can overlap with depressive symptoms and the sleep disturbances uh, can also be accompanied by additional changes in pain perception. And so there's a lot of burnout um, overlap with depression, but I'm firmly on the side of this being two different entities. While I believe that um, burnout can contribute to depression and depression can contribute to burnout, um, I definitely feel like 
they are separate. And I'd also like to take a moment to address um, absenteeism and presenteeism, because that question comes up as well. And so burnout, while it can cause someone to miss work, it's also, uh, presenteeism is also seen um, with burnout, and, and that's being at work when you really shouldn't be. I think we've gotten a little bit better about this um, during COVID, maybe one of the few things that have improved um, people are really encouraged to stay home if they are sick. Um, but often people that are burned out feel so overwhelmed by the amount of work awaiting them if they stay home uh, that they feel forced to come into work whenever they're actually very ill and should be home and in bed. So let's move on to some things we should consider when we're discussing um, well-being overall and also resilience. There are many factors affecting clinician well-being and resilience that you can see on the screen. Um, society and culture, rules and regulations, which I think factor very heavily into pathologists' perception of well-being. Organizational factors, um, your learning and practice environment, and your um, healthcare responsibilities are all on the, the left side because those are largely out of your control. Um, the factors on the right side, the skills and abilities and personal factors are really the only things that we personally can have um, a significant impact on when it comes to well-being and resilience. And that's why we are so often encouraged uh, when people discuss well-being and resilience to do things like yoga or meditation, when in fact, many of us really desire the organizational change um, that would have a more significant impact on our overall well-being. But whenever we are you know, discussing things that we ourselves can do, we have to go back to this focus on our own skills and abilities and personal factors. Next, we'll look at some things that are specific to pathologists and burnout. And on this screen, you can see some examples of contributors uh, that may be a factor in your life or in someone you know's life in the pathology department. Because pathologists practice in settings that are quite different from other clinically related specialties. Um, so pathologists as a whole would be less likely to be impacted by patient behavior and public quality ratings, for example. But they're more likely to undergo scrutiny from multiple accreditation organizations. And then some factors can remain similar regardless of specialty. Uh, so things like bias, degree of autonomy, um, EHR difficulties the amount of support your institution gives you or your department, and then reimbursement issues. All of those are going to be pretty common through, throughout the spectrum of healthcare providers. And finally, let's take a look at some factors that I noted whenever I reviewed the uh, ASCP's Job Satisfaction, Wellbeing, and Burnout Survey that is specific to pathologists. First, uh, we'll look at meaning and engagement. 
So overall, the numbers don't look terrible, right? So I feel appreciated by my institution. More than half of pathologists say that they agree or they strongly agree. Um, they feel excited about being a pathologist and empowered to make work-related decisions. Um, but there is a significant portion of pathologists that don't feel this way. Uh, maybe they're having some institutional difficulties and don't have the opportunity to influence things at work that they would like. Um, they may not feel valued by their colleagues or professionals outside the team or even respected in the field of pathology as a whole. And while these um, folks are in the minority, it's still a significant enough proportion to affect people in the department as a whole in most settings. And the opposite of burnout really is meaning and engagement. Um, having that drive and that desire um, to complete your work, that dedication, the, the vigor, the feeling of absorption whenever you are at your job. So next I'd like to talk about some organizational strategies um, that can be helpful. Um, I know we're often encouraged to focus on the personal, but um, in case we as an audience have the opportunity to influence organizational issues, we should definitely take it. So 48% of pathologists reported experiencing a little bit of stress and 47% reported experiencing a lot of stress. More than two thirds reported that the stress was mainly due to workload or call duties and about a third reported it was from having to work with colleagues. So there are strategies that can be utilized on an organizational scale to modify call or workload in a way that distributes it um, evenly or the perception anyway is that the workload or call duties are, um, are more evenly distributed. And so, there are a significant percent of pathologists feeling overwhelmed right now. You can see um, the pie chart on the right uh, between very overwhelmed and slightly overwhelmed. Um, even still someone that says they're moderately overwhelmed, I'm pretty concerned about. Um, and that's more than 75% of people. And for those that say that they feel overwhelmed by their workload, 75% um, is just the number of tasks or cases that they're being asked to take on each day. 64% say it's the additional responsibilities, so possibly the medical directorships or teaching responsibilities that they have. Almost 60% say it's due to understaffing. 40% say it's due to an uneven distribution of workload. And 25% say it's because of documentation. So some personal strategies we'll talk about next. And I really like this version of the wellness wheel, the six dimensions of wellness, um, talking about occupational wellness, which is having a life that's enriched by work and its interconnectedness to 
your overall living and playing. And then physical wellness is where you're going to find the benefits of physical activity, healthy eating, um, self-care, seeking medical attention when it's needed. Social wellness is going to be how a person contributes to their environment and community and um, social networks. And intellectual wellness is creative and stimulating activities and having the opportunity to share these gifts with others. Spiritual wellness is important to have a, your own system of beliefs and values uh, because that significantly impacts your worldview and your outlook. And then emotional wellness is going to be your self-esteem, self-control, and sense of direction. And so those external factors that are playing the primary role in inducing burnout um, can be attacked through both organizational and personal in interventions. And so focusing on this life balance, being able to integrate all of these strategies and factors um, are really key to burnout prevention. And if you're already sort of in the middle of burnout, it can be difficult to see how you'll be able to make your way out of it. But focusing on some of these um, individual strategies can be helpful in evaluating yourself for where am I most out of balance? And then taking a look at that area first uh, can be helpful as well. For, pa for pathologists who reported a good or excellent work-life balance, the top five strategies were controlling work hours to make time for other wellness activities during work days. And that's 32.7% reported that. Spending time with family. Pursuing hobbies and other personal interests exercise, and not bringing work home. So those are some specific strategies that work for other pathologists who feel like they do have a, a decent work-life balance. So next, we'll move on to Dr. Melanick, who will discuss her own experience. Judy. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm going to flip this to focus on the more personal uh, and how burnout affected me and the lessons that I got through my career uh, with regards to dealing with high-stress situations, including several multiple fatality incidents um, in the realm of forensic pathology. So on the next slide, um, to kind of introduce you to my background, um, I trained, my fellowship was at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. That's the old building before they moved into the new building under uh, Dr. Hirsch. These are my colleagues. At the time, I was the mom of a toddler. I subsequently have uh, had uh, uh, three other kids, uh, two more biological, one more foster child. But at the time that I was at the Medical Examiner's Office, I, Daniel, my el who's currently my eldest, uh, was two. My husband was a stay-at-home dad. And this is what he looked like. So, so we need some, some appreciation of the stresses of being a parent on top of uh, doing fellowship training. And I started at the um, New York City office on July 1st, just like everybody else does. And I had basically two months of training, July and August, before September 11th happened. And uh, to recall the events of September 11th, uh, two planes uh, uh, coming out of, one coming from Boston to LAX, another one departing also from Boston to LAX at a different time. They were Boeing 767s, and they slammed into the World Trade Center buildings. Um, and we had uh, the largest terrorist attack on 
on American soil um, in the history of the United States. And the buildings collapsed, um, and this became a multiple fatality incident that had to be managed by the office of the chief medical examiner where I was doing my fellowship. Uh, overnight, the office, which is on the left, you could see the blue building at the base, was basically transformed <laughs> uh, within, you know, in overnight it was transformed into a command center. And then over the course of the subsequent uh, weeks and months, going into several years, uh, trailers were set up. You could see the white trailers going down the street, the temporary work environment, and a big white tent was set up on the back lot to allow us to be able to basically convert into a 24-7 round-the-clock operation uh, responding to uh, and collecting the remains and identifying the remains of those who died uh, during this uh, incident. Here's an inside view of the loading dock, which was turned into a temporary morgue. You can see that instead of autopsy tables, uh, we have uh, gurneys that are just basically body trays that are placed on uh, 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 A-line kind of sawhorse kind of things, and uh, we've got our biological uh, our saws and our bi our cart with biological specimens uh, to be able to collect. And this is where we were doing our work. So this is by no means uh, you know an ideal work environment. Um, and then this is what happened in September, and we had to process the remains through there. So then, uh, what happens in uh, October, the following month? Um, if you recall, there was another terrorist attack on American uh, soil at that time. It was anthrax, and weaponized anthrax was being sent through the mail. And so there was the stress of not knowing where that was coming from, um, not having any sense of, of who the perpetrator was. And one of the deaths happened in New York City, and I was actually um, in the uh, office and in the morgue at the time that her autopsy was uh, done. And then in November, so we've got now we've got September, October, now November, um, an Airbus 300-600 from JFK to Santo Domingo uh, crashed in Bell Harbor, Queens, 81 seconds after takeoff. There were five fatalities on the ground and 251 passengers and nine crew on board. Um, so all within several months of each other, the office was overwhelmed uh, with several uh, fatality incidents combined with the stress of terrorism, not just in the country, but primarily targeted toward New York City. So here's uh, the site of the crash for the Airbus um, in uh, Queens. You can see that it was a localized area and the damage on the ground and the fire that affected the people there. And the following slide, next slide shows me in the uh, morgue, actually. I'm in, I'm, if you see the uh, body bag that's red and there's a person leaning into it with her hands all bloodied, that's me um, at that time. So those autopsies had to be done in our uh, primary morgue facility. You can see that there's a lot of people in there because every single table had a body and there's a lot of ancillary staff to help us with the identification and with getting the remains and the biological specimens that we need up to the lab for ID. Um, so it was uh, that while the 9-11 remains were being done in the back lot, the ones from uh, and continued for months and months, we were also having to do full autopsies on the cases from the uh, Queens crash. So in addition to just the medical examiner staff, and this is this is our entire uh, medical examiner's office, including uh, support staff, technologists, DNA laboratory, radiologists, et cetera, all uh, photographed in one photo. This does not give justice to all the people who are involved with the efforts in responding to these fatality incidents because there were ancillary staff that came from outside of uh, the state. Uh, we had DMORT uh, activated, the Defense Mortuary Operations Response Team, 
Uh, we had agencies, police agencies that came in and rotated staff, anthropologists, radiologists, dentists, they all were participating. So uh, this is just a snapshot of the people who were physically at the OCME on the day the photo was taken. But um, lots of federal, state, city, and volunteer organizations helped us during this effort. And coordinating all those people um, is a manage management uh, challenge, <laughs> not just, I, I would always say nightmare, but it's a challenge. Um, and it, the, while they're meaning to help and they come in to help, it does increase on the stress level of everybody involved to integrate people that you don't know into the organization and uh, get them to work effectively together. So that was my training ground. <laughs> so it gives you my background on where, where, where I know about burnout. After my fellowship training, I ended up uh, for nine years at the new, at the San Francisco Medical Examiner's Office. This is the building. It's a really old building uh, that uh, that has no longer been decommissioned as the Medical Examiner's Office. So we, you could see some of the doors. You could see the, the gurney. Um, it's not in the best of shape. So physical shape and plant uh, structural problems. Understaffing was the the major problem here, and bad management that had plagued this office for many years. And if you go to the next slide, you can actually see the facility from the inside. Um, I described this facility in um, my novel, uh, my husband and I wrote the novel First Cut um, about this building and we described the porcelain tables with those little flushing toilets underneath them. So you, we're dealing with really bad physical plant issues um, and uh, I just kind of wanted to give you a visual of the inside of the place uh, because that also contributes to stress when you have to uh, deal with broken equipment or equipment that can't be replaced and um, you know there, there doesn't appear to be an end in sight. Luckily um, a few years ago they moved into a new facility but I'm no longer there because I moved to my next office. I moved to the Alameda County Sheriff Corners office and while that's a brand spanking new beautiful facility uh, the problem and the stresses um, at the Sheriff Coroner's office became inherent during during uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. So uh, when it became clear that there was community spread of COVID-19, um, I went to the chiefs and the sheriffs at the office and I said, we need to implement certain measures in order to keep everybody safe. And they did not want to implement them and pushed back and refused. And I was struggling to the point that I even went over their heads to the Board of Supervisors to complain um, to try to get just basic work measures in, implemented um, and uh, personal protective equipment for the staff. And eventually it basically got so bad that I left that office and I went to New Zealand where we do have a good COVID-19 response. And if, if people have questions about that, I'm happy to answer that too, but probably for in a separate format. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of give you my personal background when it came to this because um, I, I'm glad I left that office because it was when I was in managed isolation at uh, the New Zealand uh, quarantine facility that I found out that one of my technologists, it's a little hard for me to talk about, so if, if I break, you'll understand why, Valerie Leon was one of my techs at the morgue, and she died from COVID-19, and I found out about her death when I was in managed isolation. So um, while it justified my uh, sense of, uh, of desperation and leaving that office and the stress that I was under there, um, it's still, I, I felt also very guilty and sad that I didn't stay behind to, to try to prevent that death if I could in some way. I found out later that her exposure didn't happen in the morgue. It had probably happened from family members, but it doesn't make it any less um, painful. Uh, and on arrival to New Zealand, uh, the fact that I had uh, left and I was an author and all that became quite public. So I, I took the responsibility instead to speak out about uh, COVID-19. And what I see is that 
uh, COVID-19 and this pandemic and the combined economic stresses that are on all our systems are essentially a slow motion mass fatality incident. It's, um, you know, we're dealing with uh, over 4,000 deaths per day in the United States. 9-11 was 2,700 in one day. Um, but so it's more than 9-11 every single day in the United States throughout the country. And um, all of our labs, offices, technologists, doctors are dealing with the chronic stress of feeling uh, vulnerable, uh, feeling at risk at work, and uh, feeling overwhelmed with the amount of work that's necessary, especially given that pathology does not have enough pathologists. We do not have enough people going into our field, and we know this, and it's been a chronic problem that hasn't been addressed. So what, what are the lessons from my personal story that I've gotten on how to deal with mass fatalities, uh, war, you know, basically a wartime kind of situation where you are, you feel under attack, you feel that um, management or the bosses in charge, or in in the wartime analogy, um, the 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 sergeants and the um, and the people in charge uh, are not giving you what you need. How do you get through a period when you're stressed and when you don't see an end in sight? And there's basic strategies that you can take both personally and also professionally for your team if you're a supervisor. Number one, you have to split up big tasks into small tasks. Um, when things are overwhelming, when you have a big uh, stack of, of slides, break them up into smaller pieces, um, you know, put them into little piles. Um, and somehow by breaking it up into smaller pieces and prioritizing these go first, these go second, and these will get to tomorrow or later, um, it becomes a lot more manageable. And if you have um, staff members or employees who are having difficulty, do this as a supervisor, do it for them. Show them how to prioritize and how to split it up um, so that they are not overwhelmed. Um, and then also you have to manage both your client or your management expectations, you know, whether that client is um, uh, other doctors, um, whether the management is the management of the hospital in terms of what they're expecting your turnaround time is going to be or your responsiveness is going to be to phone calls. Um, they need to understand that because of the current stress load and workload, um, their expectations need to be uh, changed and give them expectations that are more reasonable given your, your staffing and your uh, workflow uh, responsibilities. You have to do that to protect yourself and you have to do that to protect your staff. And just like in a war, you have to have flexibility. Um, if you put together a plan and it no longer seems to be working, and people are struggling and you're getting absenteeism and uh, fatigue and injuries, God forbid, uh, you need to revise your plan when it doesn't work. You have to have uh, a capability to have flexibility to change the plan. And in order to do that, you need to debrief and motivate your troops. Um, when you're with your staff, when you're with your team, praise their accomplishments, use it as an opportunity, you know, a time to, to thank everybody for their work and to set goals for what we're gonna do next. This is what we're gonna do next. That's part of splitting up the big task into little tasks. And that requires input from the entire team. It's not just um, good enough to meet with the heads of the lab. It's really helpful when you're the chief. And I, I learned this from New York City from Dr. Hirsch. Um, he had a monthly meeting where everybody came, including the janitorial staff and the contractors. It was a huge auditorium and everybody was in there and he would go one by one through the auditorium and basically ask, how's your work going? How can we make life easier on you? And he wanted people to answer, how can we make things easier for you? And sometimes it was simple fixes like, can you please not dump your scrubs in this place? It makes my life really difficult because I'm constantly walking in and having to clean up. And sometimes people don't realize that just having that 
environment, that safe environment where they can vent, um, can really fix problems really quickly because people feel like they're being heard. Um, and you have to watch, everyone has to watch out for everyone. It can't be you watch out for yourself. We, If you see somebody, even if they're your uh, subordinate, staff, colleague, your boss, getting stressed, speak out to them offer them the opportunity to tap out, which means um, they, they, you know what, maybe you should go home and I'll cover for you. Um, and we can talk about this tomorrow when you're feeling a little bit better. But the bottom line is, is that you have to bring in the troops, just like in a war. Yeah, if you've got underfunded, if you're under um, underfunded, understaffed and overwhelmed, at some point management and the, whoever the supervisors is has to work on fixing the problem, which means fixing primarily the staffing. Um, uh, top level leaders can't have a defect in empathy. It's not good enough to say, uh, I hear you, which is what my old boss used to say, oh, I hear you, I hear you, but then uh, she wouldn't actually implement anything that we asked her to do. You have to actually listen and implement what they're suggesting. Um, and the bottom line is, is that in a wartime scenario, even if the war is being badly managed by uh, the people in charge, you as an individual can still protect your people, <laughs> the people who are in your immediate control. You can protect yourself uh, by taking the time off that you need to get exercise and to um, attend to your mental health. You can protect your patients um, by making sure that they get the attention that they need. And you can protect your staff by managing your immediate environment. Even if you're not a boss, even if you're just a local leader in your immediate environment, you can keep an eye out on your staff to make sure that they're protected. So now I'll pass it on to Dr. Sergi. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Drobina and Dr. Melinek for a very powerful presentation. There is a lot to digest in your two presentations and I'm sure we have um, a lot of questions from the audience. In fact, I can see a lot of questions coming from the audience that Ken is sharing with me. Uh, before we open the floor for questions, uh, I'd like to place a quick plug for an upcoming new offering of the Practice Management Committee. As announced in an article of the January issue of CAP Today, uh, the Practice Management Committee will be offering monthly online-based open-style conversations. I cannot emphasize enough the open-style conversation format focused around topics of interest to our practice managers around the country. So although there may be a very quick presentation about a specific topic at the very beginning, the rest of it, the rest of the full hour or hour and a half is going to be open style conversational sharing of best practices, asking questions. Uh, we may even include video and audio to make it more live and allow a conversation around uh, our practices around the country. We are calling it the Practice Management Network, and it will be open to all pathologists and non-pathologists concerned with pathology practice management, all. So it doesn't have to be the CEO or the president of the group or the chairman of the department, anybody in your department who is concerned with practice management, accountants, uh, human resource, uh, C-suites, anybody, supervisors levels are invited to join this network. The inaugural session to which all of you are invited will be on February 9, and stay tuned for more announcements about this new offering.
With that, uh, I'd like to point you to additional uh, resources that uh, you can find about COVID, a very trendy topic, no doubt, uh, and other practice management resources and toolkits, as well as wellness resources on various CAP and non-CAP websites that we are going to include in uh, the transcript and the webinar uh, recording that you will get after this session. With that, I would like to open the floor for questions. And as I mentioned, we already have uh, questions coming from the audience. So many of my colleagues around the call will uh, first associate burnout with work levels. Uh, it's easy to talk about burnout and how to deal with burnout. But as Dr. Melinek mentioned, if you have 50 trays of slides on your desk or many other assignments waiting for you um, you know sometimes you feel that you're working harder than others sometimes you feel that the work is not distributed uh, fairly among all people in the department whether it's the pathologist or the non-pathologist the staff so how do you deal with uh, I, I'm, I'm addressing this question to dr Melinek in particular, um, how, how do you deal with situations in a department where everybody is aware of burnout, but first and foremost, they feel that they are working much harder than others and that the work is not distributed fairly in that department? So the first question, you know, I would have is um, when you say, how do you deal with it? The question is, who are, who are you asking that question of in terms of dealing? Obviously, the individual staff pathologist who doesn't have control over how much work they're getting they're getting they're getting they they don't have control about what comes in <laughs> um so primarily the person who's going to have to deal with that is going to be the practice manager it's going to be the person in charge uh who if they're getting complaints from the staff of i'm getting a lot more cases than the other person then it's a or, or I'm doing a lot more work than somebody else is, it, the question is, is you have to look at the systems problems. Um, is, is there, for instance, a particularly high, high level surgical, like are Wednesdays the big surgery day for the institution and Thursdays and Fridays, the surgical suites are relatively quiet. So the person on Thursday tends to get slammed with all the specimens from Wednesday and nobody else has that equivalent degree of workload. So if you have inequitabilities in the scheduling system that comes from outside forces, for example, the surgery schedule or from you know outside clinics that happen to meet on a particular day. So one person is getting a lot more slides than the other, then it's a question of adjusting the pathologist's workload to correspond to that. Um, the other thing to consider is that just because somebody has a larger tray of slides than, than another person, if they tend to be mostly benign ditzels and you know appendectomies, that's a really quick thing. It might look like a lot of work, <laughs> but it's a lot easier easier to get through than, for example, getting through uh, complex, uh, you know, tumor workups that require um, immunos, that require additional special stains, that require consultations. So volume is not just measured in numbers of slides, it's also measured in complexity of cases. Um, so it's really up to the practice manager and the, the, to be able to balance these out. And of course, there are staff members who have other responsibilities. They're not just doing surgical, so they're not just doing uh, clinical work um, 
with awards, they might be doing research and other uh, mentorship, teaching um, responsibilities that take up a disproportional amount of time. So it really is contingent on the leader of the organization to have a sense of what everybody is doing and what everybody's workload is, and sometimes open the eyes of the staff members, to the, you know, especially the ones that are complaining. They they don't know what other people are going through. They don't. They may not realize that a person who seems to be doing less work is actually doing other types of work in a different building or doing having teaching responsibilities that they don't have. Um, so, so getting people to be aware of what each other's workload is, you know, it does cut down on the sniping and the backbiting that tends to happen in these kind of situation. It's really more a question of just making people feel that everybody is working hard and the work is being distributed equitably. And, and if it isn't, then that needs to be addressed. Thank you. And uh, I entirely agree with uh, uh, leadership, the importance of leadership. A lot of times these issues are allowed to fester in a department and nobody wants to really address it. And it's really the role of the leader to do exactly everything you described and correct it when correction is needed, but address it uh, uh, front and center and make sure that everybody knows uh, that people are pulling their weight or if they are not, to act upon it and not allow it to fester. Right. Um, and, and sometimes people may not be able to pull their weight if they're going through a particular personal struggle. You know, they've just lost a family member. Uh, they're having, you know, stresses that they're at the point of quitting that they need to take a little break. They need to tap out. Um, you may not be able to share their personal or personnel file stories with other members of the team. But there are ways of making them aware that um, a person is going to be taking a little bit lower, um, less of a workload for the next month or so until they can get back up to speed. And that way, everybody else has empathy and can tolerate it instead of coming to you with complaints after the fact. Thank you. Uh, in fact, a lot of questions we are getting uh, are addressing workloads and productivity and whether the CAP has any plan or anything already in place to evaluate workload and fair distribution of workload in the department. And we are going to refer this question to um, appropriate uh, sources at the CAP and have an answer for you. Let me move to the next question, which I thought is an excellent one. You know, we think of burnout and, uh, and uh, overload and um, overwork as something internal to our departments. But sometimes things are going great in our departments and we get uh, the brunt of the burnout from other departments. For example, clinicians who are overworked and burnout in their own settings and who come to the lab with their own prejudice, uh, bad moods, uh, aggressive behaviors. So it's kind of a dual question. First, how do you deal with forces external to your own departments coming and aggressing you, quote, unquote, with their own burnout? And two, how do you advocate for wellness and dealing with wellness and burnout within your own institution? And if it's okay with Dr. Drobina, I would like to address these two questions to her. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to take those. Let's, let's talk first about the handling issues from outside your department. 
the best way that I see to handle those is with empathy. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one thing if someone's repeated bad behavior is, uh, you know, needs to be handled at an institutional level, but it's another if someone, you know, that is usually, um, you know, a decent person <laughs> comes and is having a bad day and um, snaps at you or uh, yells and just that's out of character. And, and in those cases, I feel like empathy really is the best solution. And just saying something like it looks like you're having a really uh, rough day. What's going on? Is there something that I can help with? And more often than not, that will snap the person out of their mood or whatever is going on and allow them to realize that what they're putting out externally is affecting others. Um, and it will also give them the opportunity to talk about what's going on. And, and maybe there is something that you can do that helps. And even if there's not something that you can do that helps, sometimes just having been heard is enough for people to really um, you know, be able to process what's going on internally and help them sort of move on to the next, um, you know, the next practical task. Let's, after we talk about this, let's get to what we need to do, which is look at these slides so that we can, you know, help your patient. And so I would say um, from that standpoint, that would be my, my first recommendation. And then um, the second question, as far as advocating um, within your institution for wellness, the most um, benefit I have seen is just from being involved. And sometimes that contributes to my own burnout. Um, but I find that if I am in the conversation, if I'm willing to help, if I'm able to tackle a specific project or um, give input when something comes up that I'm better able to help the people that want to make a change either within the department or within the institution. So um, just visibility and wanting to help out and, and being there with those practical suggestions um, and knowing the, you know, what's going on within your department. I held um, some, after our engagement survey, I held some work groups uh, to really listen to our own pathologists and their experience as far as what's going on that's contributing to their own burnout. And one of the things that came up over and over and over was the volume of emails. And so soon I will be you know, leading another group to discuss how we can have an impact on that. Is, is it going to be, you know, sort of creating a rules of engagement for emails? Uh, do we want to not send emails after a certain time of day? Um, do we want to have a standard out of office um, expectation for return of emails? So just finding out what's going on in, in your institution can be helpful to tackle some, you know, grab some low hanging fruit, tackle some projects that are gonna be meaningful um, to people and just get to work. Thank you, Dr. Drobina. So as I promised at the beginning of this session, not only are we going to take questions, but also 
um, share experiences that we are getting from our audience with the rest of you. So one of our participants today uh, just posted uh, a suggestion. We have set up wellness or recharge stations in the lab, a room with snacks and drinks, along with literature to refer to employee assistance, counselors, child care options, etc. This simple measure allows the staff to feel appreciated and supported and allows them to, again, have some quiet space and recharge. So that's a simple thing to do, and uh, it goes a long way to to help the staff in moments of uh, stress. It may not, I mean, it's certainly not the solution to everything, but it shows at least that the leaders of that organization care. And talking about that, there is a question specifically addressed to Dr. Melinek, and um, it says, you have a lot of suggestions for practice leaders, but what about when the leaders are the problem? Is the only answer to leave? Uh, that's a really good question, and it's not the only answer. I think that there's some strategies that you can employ before you get to the point of quitting or leaving. And I actually, um, it's it's timely because I wrote about this to some degree uh, earlier this week. If um, any of you follow me, um, I write a, co a column on op-ed column on MedPage today. Um, so if you just Google MedPage today, Melanek working stiff. The most recent column is about uh, what to do when you have a toxic work environment, meaning your leadership is uh, problematic. And I, I came up with the idea of writing it uh, primarily after seeing Dr. Fauci um, present to now under the Biden administration. And he just looked so happy and everything was trending on social media about how happy and liberated he looked. I think hashtag free Fauci was trending for a while because he just was, you could visibly see the difference in him now that he was working for different bosses with under a different administration. Um, and it gave me, you know, when I saw that look on his face, I recognized that feeling because I had been in that situation where I had bad leadership at um, the San Francisco office um, and had to find a way out. Um, so what I recommended in the, I'm, I'm going to uh, give away the, the, um, conclusions of the essay, but I do recommend you guys to read it and feel free to share it with others if you think it'll be helpful for them. But when you have a toxic work environment, when you have bad leadership or a bad boss, um, the first step is to CYA, cover your ass. Um, it means uh, keeping track of what you're doing, uh, keep a copy of your personnel file and your positive um, uh, responses, either from colleagues or um, if you get uh, accolades, awards, letters, um, anything positive that comes from other people, keep a, keep a copy in your own file. Because bad leadership and vindictive bosses uh, can sometimes uh, destroy your personnel file or um, change things, especially when you uh, go and become a whistleblower or when you highlight their inadequacies. Um, so it's a good idea to cover your ass and keep track of all that stuff, keep your own personal file to protect yourself, especially if the leadership isn't just neglectful, 
but if they're actively um, hostile, uh, antagonistic, um, or asking you to do things that are unethical or illegal, um, that needs to be documented. And there are ways of doing that either via email or by print or taking notes the way James Comey did um, to keep track of what is going on to protect yourself in case you get terminated or in case you have to leave. Um, so that's the first step is cover your ass. The second step is to find allies. Um, generally bad leaders, they're, they're not just targeting you. They're targeting other people as well. Sometimes they rotate targets. Sometimes they piss off their bosses too. Um, so find other allies. Find other people who are suffering and um, use that those allies. You start developing a network to help each other out, either because one of you needs a break to tap out and somebody else steps up, or also to collect um, evidence of the abuse or neglect, either one, um, among multiple people. And then that way you can band together to go to their bosses, to go to leadership, to management, to HR, whatever the mechanism is in your institution, to try to get redress for this bad leader. Okay, and then option number three is, and you can do all three simultaneously, by the way, they're not in sequence one, two, three, you're doing them all at once. But then finally, op option three is look for an exit strategy. And an exit strategy doesn't necessarily mean to leave, sometimes it just means uh, finding a way to neutralize this um, this bad leader, either by moving them into an inconsequential position, um, giving them other things to get busy with so that they're not harassing you anymore. Um, other exit strategies obviously involve uh, switching departments or even switching jobs. So those are the, the three approaches to dealing with bad leadership that, that I've kind of identified in this essay, but I do encourage you to read it. Uh, thank you, Dr. Melinek. I'm going to keep you on the hook. Very quickly, Dr. Melinek, considering that you're talking about leaders and different leadership styles, how would you suggest addressing uh, a leader that comes to you and tell you, oh, come on, swallow it. Uh, when I was your age or when I was in your situation, I used to do 10 times more and I never whined about it. So, you know, just man up, yeah. quote, unquote, and take care of it. I've had those bosses before. I mean, the first thing I do is I actually, those kind of people love to talk about themselves. So it's always good to just, you know, just like uh, Gina, Dr. Debrina said, um, you know, lead with empathy and say, oh my, that must've been really difficult. Um, tell me more about that period of your training and get them to actually talk about how crappy their training was and what they would have liked that their bosses would have done to make things better for themselves during that time period so that they didn't have to go through it. And sometimes if they're, in, if they're sufficiently intelligent and, and uh, you know, insightful people, they will realize that they, it was miserable for them to go through and nobody should have to go through that and it's incumbent upon them to fix it. If they're lacking in empathy or insight, then you're basically dealing with a person who has a defect in empathy, um, uh, you know, on the sociopathic spectrum, in which case you have to do the other three strategies. But I think specifically when they give the I walked, you know, both ways in the snow uphill uh, speech, it, it really helps to find out more about them and find out more about what their the conditions were like back then um, and find out also about maybe, and it, this is also something to consider is have empathy for your bosses as well. They might be being told by management, no, we can't give you more staff. <laughs> they're, they're also in a bind. <laughs> so, you know, there, there may be situations where those bosses are not just telling you to stop whining because, um, 
they don't want to hear it anymore, but because they're getting pushed and they're getting uh, stressed from above from their supervisors to do more with less and don't 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 have an out themselves. So they can't figure out how to deal with the situation. And so their only reaction is to tell you to stop whining instead of actually finding actionable ways to improve the circumstances for, for everybody, including themselves. So again, lead with empathy because that will that will usually guide you to the solution. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to echo that real quick, just to say I agree absolutely with everything. And once you lead with empathy, you can end with, I'm so glad we know better now so we can do better. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, I, we, we can definitely go on for another couple of hours based on the number of questions and comments we are getting. Unfortunately, we are at the top of the hour. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, our topic expert. Thank you to all of you, our audience, for attending today and until next time. Thank you for listening to this CAPcast. To listen to our other episodes, find us on the My CAP app, available for CAP members, as well as SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Just search for CAPcast from the College of American Pathologists on these apps. Once you find our podcast, be sure to click the subscribe button so you don't miss new CAPcast episodes.